Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hello there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Rebecca, one of your hosts today. And I'm Samantha, back again and excited for the ninth episode of the second season entitled Better Left Unsaid. And I'm Nina, new here to Life Out Loud and excited to get to know these authors and their stories. And I'm Karen. Yes, we're back. And in this episode, we hear the stories of three young authors who question whether something important is maybe better left unsaid. Our first story of the night is by seasoned author and production team member here at Life Out Loud, Karina Velez. Karina Velez wants to live in a world filled with innovative thinkers, books that come bundled with green tea, and a cure for procrastination. As an aspiring forensic psychologist currently studying at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, she plans to graduate this fall without spontaneously combusting, after which she'll be attending Harvard University for her MA in clinical psychology. When she's not studying or writing feedback letters for a creative nonfiction class, you can find her hidden behind her camera, Bartholomew, organizing her next big adventure or drawing floor plans for tiny houses. Thank you, Nina. Let's take a listen to Nafase Ya Mwezo. You are sitting in an orphanage dining room in Tanzania next to a woman old enough to be your grandmother. Her white hair shines silver against the purple walls, and a baby blue handkerchief is tied neatly around the crown of her head to keep her short hair away from her face, and most importantly, to keep it out of her way. Nothing gets in this woman's way. You've understood that from the moment you met her. You are certain that although she looks smaller than the wooden chair she occupies at the head of this makeshift banquet table, she could still take on all 18 of you at once if she had to. You sit still, quietly listening as Mama Lynn ends one of her many stories about the hardships light in Africa has faced and overcome. After receiving a message from God while running errands in her small town in England, Mama Lynn was called to open this orphanage, that which she calls a children's village, located at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro. This children's village cares for, houses, feeds, and medicates more than 200 kids with severe disabilities and HIV and AIDS. Kids whose parents have abandoned them. Kids who have been beaten till broken. Kids who have never known love or play. She sighs as she closes her most recent tale, one which ends with her proclamation that she has never, ever, not once in her 16 years in Africa, paid a bribe. Given one, that Tanzania ranks 14th on the world's most corrupt governments list. Two, the fact that here over 60 words can signify our one for bribe. And three, Mama Lynn's regular and quite necessary interactions with the government, given her role in picking up the children of the state, procuring their antiviral HIV medication, having to fight for her land, her visa, her life, the children's lives, not once paying a bribe is quite a feat. She stares off into her own thoughts. God is good all the time, she says. 
and immediately you are brought back to your nine years of Catholic school, the days you went to church each week with your traditional Latino Catholic family, and suddenly you want more than anything to respond with what you know the congregation is expected to call into response. And all the time, God is good. But you don't. You stay quiet. As you sit before one of the fiercest women with whom you will ever cross paths, you understand that she is a true woman of God, but you, <laughs> you most certainly are not. So instead, you just keep listening as you bury your shame. You listen to her stories about the children who've come to light in Africa, the children it seemed that even God had left for dead. You learn about Helen, one of the students in your theater storytelling class. She's a mentally disabled 20-year-old who looks 14. Her head is too small for her body. She has trouble speaking. You learn that she was regularly kept caged or tied to a tree at her family's home and that upon her arrival at Light in Africa, she exhibited signs of rape and other trauma. Not only did Mama Lynn find her and save her in her teens, work to potty train, socialize, love her, you learn that she also fought for months to keep her when her grandmother wanted her back. Lots of time and legal fees led to Helen's grandmother's admittance that she had planned to sell Helen as a sex slave now that she functioned more properly around others. Luckily for Helen, her family gave up before Mama Lynn did. And to that, you wanna say, amen, but you don't. You learn about Peter, who suffers from cerebral palsy, a condition local witch doctors aim to heal by removing his right eye. It is unclear if it was taken in an attempt to help him or if it was sold by his family for the doctor's private collection in exchange for a few shillings. But Mama Lynn found him before they could take anything else. He will not be hurt again, not under her watch. And to that, you want to rejoice, hallelujah, but you don't. And then you learn about the Maasai boy, Patrick, the one who suffers from a form of mental retardation and stunted growth, the one who begs you to hold him all day, every day, smiling so hard he can't help but drool all over your shirt, the one whose tribe believed he would never grow strong enough to be a man or partake in the ritual coming of age circumcision ceremony or any other rite of passage for that matter, unable to care for himself, HIV positive, without one dose of antiviral meds his entire life, deaf, unable to speak, his family left him at age 12 in a water duct alone. But someone told. Someone got a tip to Mama Lynn. Maybe his mom had started the rumor, whispered that her boy lay helpless in a duct to the right person, the person who would get the word to Mama Lynn, who would then search and search and search all day until she found him. And to that, you want to shout at the top of your lungs that, yes, God is good. You want to tell Mama Lynn that the kids are so lucky to have her, that she is a force of God. No, a force for God. But you don't. In fact, you say nothing at all because you fear that the words will follow like spitfire. What if she asks you for your story? What if she asks you, are you a Christian? What if she asks you, are you saved? What would you say? You don't want to offend anyone, especially not her. You don't want her to think any less of you, any less of the group, any less of the work you're doing this week. The work that brought everyone here to Tanzania to teach classes for kids, to share stories, to sand and paint windows. If she asked you, 
any of these things, how would you respond? What would you say? Should you lie? Should you say you're religious? Or should you simply deny your relationship with God altogether and say you're not religious at all? That's normally easier back home. Or would you try to explain what sometimes feels like the truth? That you are secretly Catholic deep past your flesh and through your ribs, those laid out like church pews lining the secret inner altar of your heart, that you do believe somewhere. How could you explain that truth to her, the complicated truth, the truth that left you unsure of your faith? How could you tell her that the real truth was that you'd found Jesus when you were 13 every Thursday night on the lips of the first girl you ever loved while hiding in the Sunday school closet at church? How could you tell her that you'd later lose that same Jesus you'd found amongst the cleaning supplies in that deep, dark space when that same girl had said she'd choose the teachings of the church over your proclamation of I love you one Thursday night when the words escaped your throat before you could stop them? Or that you lost him yet again after that, when your later girlfriend insisted you join a Christian church, that you attend one-on-one -on -one sessions with a pastor who thought the proper touch of a man could overpower the touch of any woman. And yet again after that, when you were told you were going to hell, that your soul would live on in a fiery damnation forever and ever and ever, regardless of your prayers, regardless of you having to have learned to love unconditionally, regardless of you having given all your money to a church that would never accept you. How could you tell her that you'd lost him permanently? Or so you thought after the years and years and years you'd prayed and prayed and prayed not to be gay, not to be like this, that you'd prayed you'd get to go to heaven too with all the straight people. How could you explain your loss, your anger, your betrayal, your flat out rejection for her discriminatory faith while you watched her here? Watched her working magic with the love of the Lord straight through her bare, bony, cracked, aging hands. How could you explain that you had chalked it all up to bullshit? That that had been easier until now. Until you saw her here, living the word, fighting for others, reading the text literally, saving the poor, the tired, the sick. While also explaining that deep down, you always knew that you did believe. You always knew that there was a God, that you were just mad, you were tired, you felt abandoned. Like so many of the children here at Light in Africa, you'd felt ashamed. And it is here at this banquet table that you look deeply at this shame for the first time in a long time. You question it. You rip it open. You watch as it squirms and contorts and seeps its truth everywhere inside of you. And you see it. You feel it for what it really is. If you're really being honest with yourself, you're not afraid of your story or the answers you could give if she asked. Rather, you're ashamed deeply ashamed of being proud of it. You are ashamed that you do have a relationship with God because if there's one thing you've learned in the past nine years, you've attempted to figure all of this out, it's that there's no such thing as a Christian lesbian. So when Mama Lynn looks at you just before finishing another story and says that for sure, light in Africa is the last resort, the last chance for these children. 
that she takes them only and only when no one else will, she will then half-heartedly smile at you. She will look tired and you will play with the small baby Jesus charm that hangs from your neck and you will realize then that maybe, just maybe, Light in Africa is not only these children's nafati yamwejo, not only their last chance, but perhaps it can be yours too. That maybe you are also a child who can find safety here, one who can find love here, one who can find God here. That maybe you can accept your own faith here and keep it this time, swallow it whole as a real part of you, like everything else you've accepted and learn to love about yourself. Like the fact that you will marry a woman soon, a beautiful, bright, supportive, accepting woman who you simply know God loves too. You realize at this banquet table with her that this could be your last chance at faith, at keeping the faith you always had. No, you didn't find Jesus here. You didn't need to. You always carried him with you for so long. You'd carried him with you, even when everyone told you that you could not be a homosexual and know God. But now, here, at this table, it seems that maybe, maybe you can. His weight feels a little lighter here. And you know what? Yours does too. Uh, <laughs> mine doesn't. <laughs> my heart feels like every time I hear that, I feel like my heart might explode. Yeah. <laughs> because there's so much going on, and I've heard this easily several six times. times. Yeah, like way a good over six, six times. times. And every time it like really gets to me too. I'm always like crying by the end. I'm like, oh, God. I'm sorry. I've made you guys listen to it for so many no like, <laughs> no do not be sorry like it's it's an amazing piece i love hearing it every time Church thank you thank you <laughs> okay so your story really speaks to the episode's theme where you feel like your sexual orientation is better left unsaid to mama lynn because you do not want her to look down upon you and the rest of the group you say you don't want to offend anyone especially not her you don't want her to think any less of you any less of the group, any less of the work you're doing this week, the work that brought everyone here to Tanzania, and by the end of the piece, you feel comfortable being a lesbian Christian. What was the journey like in the orphanage? Why did the weight of Jesus feel a little lighter there? Would you be able to tell Mama Lynn your story now? Um, well, let's just start off with the heavy questions now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, let's get to it. To... Uh, be honest, I when when I got to the orphanage, I was never I never anticipated um, having to confront my sexuality and what it meant for me to be um, an open lesbian here in the U.S. Uh, over there in Tanzania, um, and I didn't think it would matter. I didn't think any of it would uh, would mean anything that I could just brush it under the rug or like still be me without having to address everything about me mm -hmm. um but when we got there and we started working with the kids and seeing their faith and and just them having so little 
but everything that they had revolved around their faith. It started to make me um, really think about like who, what made me me (laughs) and uh, what the core, uh, like what my core values were. If everything was stripped away from me, um, all my material stuff, my iPhone, my MacBook Pro, everything that I choose to hide behind um, here in the States or that I use to, to sort of like present this persona that I want people to um, to pers- like to, to interpret me as. If all of that were ripped away from me, I would be a lesbian Christian girl who, <laughs> um, you know, loves her family and, you know, has gone through a lot of stuff. But my core values would be that uh, me and God, that was, that's what it would be, me and God and the way that I choose to show love to others. And so... I remember sitting, us sitting there and uh, getting ready to write down our spiritual pieces and me becoming completely unable to hold it together. I started crying and ran off Mm -hmm. because I just, I didn't know how to deal with that. And I, I had known that it had been something for me for a really long time. Um, That something that I didn't want to address whether or not um, one could be a homosexual and have a relationship with God, whatever God it may be, whether it was, you know, Buddhism or anything at this point, you know. Um, and the beautiful thing about Tanzania is that it's 50% Muslim and 50% Christian and they live in complete peace. But you see most of the conflict rely in, or, or most of their identity rely in their, uh, their religion and their relationship with God. And I envied that. And I wouldn't think going over to Tanzania that you'd envy something like that. Um, but I did, and I, I had to address it. I don't know if I'd ever tell Mama Lynn, though, now, as uh, after after <laughs> word. I mean, she's amazing, and I highly doubt. One of the first things she said when we went there was like, oh, Light in Africa is non-denominational. It is not a – we do not expect you to be this, that, or the third um, – you could come out as green and like you'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I still felt so hesitant because I wanted her to know me and I wanted her to know everything about me. Um, but I was scared that in doing that, she would judge me like so many people had judged me and so many people in the States continue to judge me. So, so how did in the end, like um, the weight of Jesus feel a little lighter that there? I kind of came to terms with the fact that it's it's like it was a little it, I'm not gonna lie it was extremely difficult um and it was this like in internal like struggle um almost the entire trip that we were there um but I was sitting looking at Mount Kilimanjaro from our little fire pit that we mm-hmm. had in that area and I had chosen there to write and um one of uh, the professors on our group came over to speak with me and see if I was okay. And I realized that that was the first time I had ever openly said, I'm both Catholic and a lesbian. It's the first time that I had made that distinction, that this is what I am and this is what I identified. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time that I had said, these are the two things. And that in itself lifted this enormous weight off of me, being able to say it, being able to... I never really had a coming out story. 
Like that was just not something, you know, my parents were just like, oh, so you like females, huh? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But like, it was never like, mom, dad, I have something to tell you. And so um, there was just this moment where I didn't think that I would have to come out as um, a Catholic, as as a, a person who believed in God. I didn't think I would have to come out as that. And and I was called out. I felt kind of called out on mm-hmm. while I was there with these kids, with these phenomenal kids and this incredible yeah. woman who wanted all of us to just move the world mm-hmm. like she had moved the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I, I want to be able to stand on my own two feet and mm-hmm. say proudly, this is who I am and I don't care and no one's going to take that away from yeah. me. And I, me, my piece the beauty about my piece is is that whole that whole thing is just our time at light in africa Mm -hmm. and that's not to say that i'm not going to continue to struggle with being um a lesbian and being a christian or catholic or someone who is spiritual and feels a connection with god but in that moment it felt easier yeah it felt like i could walk the path yeah, the children definitely take like a big part in your story. And I think there's this uh, really beautiful moment when you compare yourself to them and you say, um, and you will realize then that maybe, just maybe, like in Africa is not only these children's nafase, nafase, oh my gosh, yamwejo, not only their last chance, but that perhaps it can be yours too. That maybe you are also a child who can find safety here one who can find love here, one who can find God here, that maybe you can accept your own faith here. So I have to ask, um, what was it like working with these kids every day in Tanzania? What was the this realization like that you, you're you not so different from these orphans? And um, how did it feel to accept and be um, accepted from the, the people that, that live in a totally different world than you do? It was single-handedly one of the most amazing experiences I think I will ever have in my entire life. Um, Being able to go to another country, another place, and think that, you know what, I'm bringing, like, I'm I'm the American who's going in and I'm bringing all of this knowledge and all of this like resource and I'm coming in to like help you. And like, I feel like so many people have that mentality when they volunteer. Um, And we went there and it was like these, we were the ones who became Mm -hmm. these gracious, this thankful individuals who so thankful that these kids gave us the time of day Mm. Um, that they taught us the lessons that they did, that they reminded us that what we have um, we're very fortunate to have and, and that we have so much growing to do as people internally Mm -hmm. Um, because these, these, these children, they were just astounding they they yeah. i mean samantha yeah. had the had you were with me yeah so i did you... have the privilege to be there too and i thought i thought it was like so amazing how like they have absolutely nothing and like but they look like they have everything yeah. like so much more than i do like it was just it's really amazing I, like i remember sitting there watching the kids play and just admiring their happiness and thinking about like 
all the trivial things back home that I had thought about, like that I had allowed to make me unhappy. Mm -hmm. But I have all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Why am I unhappy? Why am I the one, you know, who I can't run around and just like beam joy like they do? And I remember watching them play and just coming to the realization that like I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I want to be like them, and I, I, I want to know who I am, and and that to be. That to be enough. Yeah. And it just it made me. They made me want to be a better person. They made me want to strive every day for the rest of my life to just be a better person. Uh, it's just that I I found it really interesting how. How you usually when you hear like a coming out story, mm-hmm. of someone who is religious, uh, they usually. Uh, you know, they're usually very comfortable with their religion mm-hmm. and not, you know, and, you know, having the uh, op- opposite adverse uh, reaction to finding out uh, their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I'm not, you know, I myself, I'm not religious, so I've never had that kind of problem uh, growing up. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's just that um, at, for you, um, was it easy to figure out um, that you were a lesbian or was it like very difficult? It was like an arduous journey and... Uh, because it's just that I understand that the focus of the piece was mostly uh, your relationship with your religion, your relationship with God. And mm-hmm. how how did uh, you being a lesbian factor into, you know, how, how, how did that become a factor is what I'm trying to ask. In you asking me that question, it made me realize that it was harder for me to come out as a Christian than it was for me to come out as gay. Mm. Or as a as a lesbian, it was harder for me to um, openly and comfortably be like, yeah, you know what? I believe in God. Like if that was almost way more taboo than me saying that, like, I'm a lesbian and this is this is who I am. Um, I always knew. I mean, in terms of, of like directly answering your question, <laughs> I always knew that I was uh, gay. It was never I, like I always knew that I preferred women. Um, so it was never something that. Um, I was alarmed by it felt comfortable. It was more I was alarmed at the fact that I shouldn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Like I should find men attractive. I should um I should be seeking the attention of um gentlemen as opposed to seeking the attention and the love of women. Mm-hmm. Um so that was more of a of a shocking thing for me. It just felt that it was just it was natural. It was uh it was tough. <laughs> it was tough coming to the realization that like the way that I felt was like society, like society just wasn't down with it. Mm. They were like, I'm going to need you to fix that. <laughs> I and, and I was like, you're going to have to check again. <laughs> Cause it's not happening. Yeah. So. Oh boy. But were those feelings brought on by, you know, your religious teachings or was it just something that you felt that, it is natural for you, but at the same time, society doesn't think it. It's you know, it doesn't doesn't agree. You know, um, I guess it's more of it was it was just it was natural for me. I it's just so it's so interesting how much society plays a role on who we choose to pre- present ourselves as and mm-hmm. whether or not like we're comfortable with it. Because in living in New York, um, you would think that like it's just completely liberal central and like everything goes and like this might as well be sin city like according uh, to most people um, in the country <laughs> but 
for me, I found, I always found um, it a little bit more challenging to say that, you know, I believe in God and mm-hmm. I went to church. Like, I would joke with people and I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, because I, I went to Catholic school. We all know what that means. It means that it didn't mean anything. Like, oh like I just, my parents didn't want me to go to public school, so they sent me to Catholic school. Yeah. But, but it it's just interesting that for, for so long I felt ashamed to be able to say that, like, yeah, you know what? I am a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I also um, come home to a lovely woman who bakes me amazing food all the time. <laughs> and, like, plus. Plus, plus and dating women. <laughs> Especially yeah, if you don't yeah. know how to cook. You know, yeah. So <laughs> it was just, it was, um, it was interesting. It was different. Um, but it's, in in New York, it wasn't hard for me to be able to be like, oh yeah, you know what? Like I'm I'm gay. Like this is my partner. It's nice to meet you. It was more like it was more difficult for me to be like, oh yeah, you know, I also have church. I have to go to church on Sunday yeah. because that would get more of a side I feel eye. Like, I feel like you're you don't mind identifying as a lesbian or a Catholic. I feel like just putting them two together is just so hard yeah. sometimes to explain yeah. to people. Just like it is because then you get to ask the question like yeah. how. How do you do that? How, how do you balance those like, two? <laughs> you get I, called out. Go ahead. I just, I have this hilarious, just mental picture of you at Cubbyhole going, oh, guys, <laughs> I got to get home early. I got to go to church. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, and that is just like so very Karina. And that's just like, oh, dear. For, for anyone who doesn't know, Cubbyhole is a gay bar. In New York City. <laughs> yes. York City, Shout yes. out. We are more than welcome to accept promotions from you, Cubbyhole, if that's what you want to do. Sponsor uh, us. <laughs> <laughs> um, um no but on a serious note yeah that's that's exactly what it is and you would think that like in new york like who cares like it's not a big deal but it, it kind is. of mm-hmm. is religion yeah. like it's almost as if it has no place mm-hmm. in in so much of our lives now and it, i mean it's not to say that it's a bad thing i mean and, and i think a lot of people also just identify religion with being the, a thing that starts wars the mm-hmm. thing that starts yeah. that that starts fires mm-hmm. and people would prefer to steer clear of forest fires and starting them so like that's, that's why i really like how you refer to it in your piece how you didn't say religion as much as you said my relationship with god yeah and i feel like that distinction yeah. was very important in that way because religion has its own connotations yeah and like being a christian myself i've run across this term fairly recently so when i read it in your piece i was like yes this is the way it needs to be. You don't have a religion. You have a relationship with God. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. I think it's really religion that mandates all these rigorous things. And God just kind of loves you for who you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. the way that I was raised. And I know, yeah, I know, too. Karen, you have a you have a background um, too in 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 God. <laughs> I, have, I have a, a small degree in Christianity, <laughs> um, but like you you can understand, you can attest to it too, and and, and you can too, Rebecca. The fact that like you um you know that that when you come out and you say yeah I'm a Christian also too if you notice I keep flopping between Christian and Catholic, Christian yeah. and Catholic because because if I deem myself as one what am i leaving of the other things that i do practice too like how do i identify as it's just easier to say i have a relationship with god because at the end of the day i'm a spiritual person and i believe in god and i'm gay and that's okay 
it is. And that is our new LOL slogan. So. <laughs> I am gay. And, and that's okay. <laughs> and with our new slogan, we want to thank you for being here again, yes, Karina. Thank you so thank much. Thank you guys for making me feel so comfortable. I appreciate it. Of course. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for reading. Our second story of the night is by an author named Monique Clark. Monique Clark was born in Westmoreland, Jamaica. In 2006, during the sixth year of her primary education, she migrated to the United States of America. Monique currently lives in Brownsville, Brooklyn. She graduated from John Jay College of Criminal Justice, June 2016. At John Jay, Monique majored in criminology and minored in English. She worked as a Sikh peer mentor and was a member of Chi Alpha Epsilon National Honor Society, as well as a Ronald E. McNair Scholar. Monique is currently in her second semester of graduate school at Brooklyn College, and she is interested in researching black males' experiences in higher education. Ultimately, she intends to become a research sociologist who contributes real value and knowledge to the field of sociology and criminology. Now let's take a listen to Monique's piece entitled Deceiving Shadows. Saturday mornings are my favorite. Our house in Jamaica is warm and loud. The sounds of crickets and roosters let us know a new day has come. My aunt is in the kitchen preparing breakfast. The smell of fried dumplings and callaloo, a green leaf vegetable similar to collard greens, is everywhere in our house. My cousin and my uncle finally approach the dining room. After my aunt's fifth announcement, breakfast is ready, she yells again. My Uncle Richie playfully pulls off the orange silky head tie I wore to bed, exposing my coarse black hair. You was the first one here, I bet. Always ready to eat, he jokes. He's right about that. I laugh (laughs) and put my scarf back on. Me, my aunt, and my uncle are having our favorite, peppermint tea, for breakfast. My cousin Tasha pulls out the chair next to me. Pass the orange juice, please, she says to no one in particular. They say cousins are your first best friends. My cousin and I share the same room, hang-me-down, hairstyles, and chores. Like who was supposed to wash the dishes after dinner? Nine times out of ten, she tricks me into doing her chores. I don't want to start any bad feelings between us, so oftentimes I just do what she says. Normally... I'm the one rinsing the clothes and helping my aunt put them on the line in the backyard. If uncle needs help with anything, he calls my name first. I want to help my aunt and uncle, so Tasha uses it to her benefit. She's three years older than me, but that does not stop my mother from buying us the same clothes in different colors. Though I am 10, the age difference adds diversity to our relationship. But it's our skin color, food choices, interest in boys that makes us different we both stand no taller than five two but tasha is light-skinned so my grandfather called her yellow i am dark as charcoal her eyes are hazel thin brownish hair surrounds her face it holds small freckles on her left cheek my hair is thick and dark they call me fat face growing up because of the size of my freckleless cheeks which looked like they weighed more than any other part of my body. My mother and Tasha's father are brothers and sister. They both left us in Jamaica while they went to New York. 
you'll soon come too, they say to us. But first, they have to work, earn enough money, and then start the application process for us to get our visas. They send us tall brown barrels of canned food, cereal, caprisons, and clothes twice a year. In the meantime, we were left in care of our other aunt and uncle. We all live in the same house in Westmoreland, Jamaica. In our family's house, we have rules. Uncle Richie is particularly strict about curfew. Don't stay out on the road after the streetlights come on, he will remind us. That means the sun is going down and night is coming. It's not safe for us young girls to be out at night. He's always worrying about us, making sure that no one messes with us, especially boys. You know how those false ripe boys are when it gets dark? He warns all the time, while looking to the left and to the right of our neighbor's house. Our bodies are developing. A few days earlier, I remember calling my mom because my monthly friend had surprised me for the first time. My Aunt Marie refused to baby me about it. She claimed I was acting like I was sick with a virus. That same week, Uncle Richie saw Tasha talking to one of the older boys who lives across the street from us. The tall light post flickers and we both know what that means. But Tasha doesn't move a step. I pull her hand to direct her toward the path that leads to our red and half white board house. Instead, she shrugs me off. Don't say nothing, she warns. But before I nod my head in agreement, we hear a voice. Where they at? Uncle Richie's full bass voice can be heard from the top of the road. Tasha, don't you have your books to study? Uncle Richie asks with his left hand slightly under his chin, implying that she has better things to do than talk to boys at night, and she best agree with him right then and there. That's your father? The boys ask. Uncle Richie answers before Tasha can. Mind your damn business and leave my niece. Uncle Richie is short, muscular, with wide shoulders, biceps poking out like a bodybuilder, and cloudy eyes always looking like he had just smoked his daily fix of marijuana. His four messy cornrow braids remind me of when Tasha and I need to get our hair done. The last thing he wants is for anything bad to happen to us while our parents are away in a different country. He's just strict because he knows he and my Aunt Marie are all we have. Every morning he walks us to school. We don't live too far away, but we also don't live that close to the four-story gray brick primary school. Bless up, Rich. His early bird friends will holler at him as we stroll by them. Tech school, serious, both of you. He will tell us as he drops us off. Yeah, uncle, I respond. I'm talking to you too, Tasha. He booms. She nods. I just want your parents to be proud. That following evening after school, Tasha and I are supposed to take a taxi back home. I know because I saw Uncle Richie giving her the money and telling her what to do with it. Instead, we are walking. My black shoes squeeze my left pinky toe as I walk and kick the white gravel into the potholes. Hurry up now, she demands. We have to walk fast to make it. Seems like Tasha had used the money for taxi. I look away and roll my eyes at her. But I also pump up my speed to catch up with hers. Like the chore she makes me do. It's not worth telling on her. Not worth getting anyone in trouble. I don't want any trouble between us. Tasha knows how to walk past people and make them feel like they're invisible. She knows how to include her friends and cousins into hopscotch games and leave other people out waiting or just taking scores. I don't want to have to be on the outside. 
I have to make her believe that I'm her best cousin. When we get home, aunties iron our green and white school uniforms in the living room while preparing dinner in the kitchen. Tasha, show your little cousin how to boil rice, she says. Instead, Tasha watches TV and convinces me that it's my turn to wash the dishes again. I start doing them even though we all know it's not my turn. And to Marie asks, why are you always standing here washing the plates? It's my turn. I lie. Remember Tasha did it yesterday? I use my countless dishwashing moments to reflect. Oftentimes, they're memories of my mother and me. Mommy only visit once each year for a month. Her visits last between August and September. Her favorite and my least favorite time of the year. Back to school season. Once after she left, Miss Miller caught me standing in the back of the class looking through the white metal window with tears cleaning straight lines through the dust on my cheeks. When she asked me what was wrong, words could barely make their way out my mouth. Instead, mucus from my nose clung to my top lip as I choked out. My mother goes back to New York today. School is my sad place. I feel alone there. At home, at least I know I have Uncle Richard to watch over me, even if he does expose my head on bad hair days. I also have Auntie Marie, and even Tasha to play with, even if she's mean sometimes. She's my only friend, really, and we're stuck together, at least until one of our parents come back. Every night, Tasha and I lay down together. We don't just share a room, we share a bed. But one night, one night, after I've done the dishes for Tasha again, one night after I've done my homework and Tasha has skipped hers, one night after eating chicken and rice for dinner like always, something strange happens. The room is dark. The hot air is sitting on the right side of my cheek. A thin layer of sheet wraps around my warm bare legs. My toes wiggle together. I can feel the unfamiliar presence of someone else in the room. Who is here? I force my eyes open, and I see an image of what appears to be a man standing over me. Is this a ghost? Am I dreaming? It is then that I feel a cold, coarse hand slowly moving its way up and down between my legs. The tiny hairs on my skin suddenly become stiff. My body remains still. This isn't a ghost. It's Uncle Richie? I want to scream, but my stomach tightens. I finally get the courage to shift my body, which lets him know that I am now very conscious, but I don't react. I don't say anything. He leaves, and the house is quiet. I can hear his gentle footstep on the feeble wooden floors. He quickly disappears into the darkness of the room and out the door. My skin loosens. My body shivers as I try to catch my breath. I run to the bathroom, locking the door behind me where I lean against one of the tall brown barrels sent from New York which we recycle as a hamper. I fold my knees to my chest and rock back and forth. I wish I could curl up in that barrel and be mailed to my mother. If I tell, everyone is going to get cursed out by my mommy. Everyone will fight, and I will be stuck here with all of it, alone, without my parents, without anyone. My family is going to look disgusting. Tasha will think I'm disgusting, and she will surely leave me out. She might not even have to. When everyone hears, they will think I'm lying anyway. How long did it go on for? A few nights or just this one night? Did you hear what Richie did? My other family members are going to act each other. Neighbors will act each other. They'll stare at me when I walk to school. 
no, 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 no. I can't tell. This is going to destroy our house, our lives, and my life. I decide I shouldn't say anything. Like the taxi money, the dishes, the other choice, the boys that Tasha talks to. I won't say anything. I can't say anything. But I have to say something. You can't do that to little girls. You can't. This isn't like the chores. This is different. I know. He's a grown man. I am his niece. This is nasty. What if he comes back again? I can't, I can't, I can't keep such an ugly secret. I can't. Or should I? God help me. God? I sit in the dark on the cold tile bathroom floor, my back now against the wall. I'm about to ruin my family. I know. I can't. I won't. Night passes. The sunlight starts to beam through the little holes between the red wooden windows. But maybe I should. I jump up off the floor. Slowly, I turn the silver doorknob and walk back to the room. Uncle Richie isn't in the house at all. He knows that I saw him. He knows what he did. He knows I know. Tasha is still asleep. Yes. What? She acts as I tap her shoulder to get her up. I have, I have to, I start to say. But as I'm about to open my mouth to tell her about last night, my lips stop moving. My Aunt Marie's in the kitchen, still dressed in her orange nightgown. Come in the kitchen quick, I beg Tasha. My palms begin to sweat as I walk back into the kitchen. Tasha follows behind me, looking both haggard and curious. What's wrong with you? She hisses at me. Tasha continues to look at me with a, why did you bring me in here face? I think of lies I can tell. I can still back out of this. I don't have to tell. Don't have to. Auntie, auntie, I had to tell you something. I blurted out, interrupting my own thoughts. I repeat everything from my night. I tell them everything, everything, knowing that maybe they'll be mad at me. That maybe Tasha will act differently to me. That I won't be the best cousin anymore. I stare at my aunt's face. Her mouth a bit open. I'm almost done explaining when Tasha interrupts me. He did it to me too, she says. I just never told anyone. I am so, so sorry that you had to go through something like that. You and your cousin both. I, the, the first time I finished reading this, I found myself in tears because not only was this written so, with so much like visceral detail and it just showcases how vulnerable the narrator was, you know, how you were. And I just, I, I, I admit, I kind of lost it at the end of my first reading. And mm. I, I, I just don't know what else to say aside from I'm just so, so sorry. And I'm so, so glad that you're safe now. At least I think you are. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, but <laughs> but before we uh, get a little too sappy, <laughs> we should probably move on to... Um, to uh, a question that we've been uh, wanting to ask for a while. Um, throughout this piece, you were describing different instances in which this uncle of yours, who always seemed to be looking out for you and your cousin, 
and you know, you know, he sounded like a good guy. But throughout this, you know his actual true colors. So why do you try to demonstrate this? Why choose to demonstrate this in that manner? Like, why would you humanize someone who has hurt you and your cousin so, so much? For me, it wasn't about to prove him as a bad guy. It was to kind of express myself because that's how I felt in that moment. He's my family. He's my uncle. So, of course, I love him dearly, but this is not something that I would share with just anyone. This is not something I talked about with anyone. So for me to express this in writing, it was important for me to let it be known that this is my family. This is someone I care about. This is someone who cared about me, but this is what happened. Mm. Yeah. Like getting the reality of it in that... um, I think I think th- th- something that's really interesting about the story is that it's proof that anyone can be, um, like, uh, I don't even know. It, anyone can do something like this. That's the mm-hmm. thing. A lot of the times when we think of this kind of situation, when we think of, like, molestation, we think of some, like, masked person in, like, right. an alley or someone evil mm-hmm. that, like, The guy who pops in. up in the bushes? Yeah, that, yeah. like, pops out of the bushes or, like, peeps through windows that no one knows. But it can really be someone that's closest to us, too. Yeah. And I think that's really important to note is mm-hmm. that humans aren't completely good. Humans aren't completely bad. They, it is that, like, mix that you show really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And it really shows how brave you are for not only just telling your family, but you're telling the story to so many people and even more now that it's on the podcast. Yeah. So we want to thank you so much for sharing this piece with us and for sharing it with all of our listeners. No problem. That was a big step for me. Mm-hmm. That was something I, I kept imagine. inside. So for me to write about it was was big. Mm-hmm. You deserve a hug. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So oftentimes it's really hard to tell family about family. Mm-hmm. And especially if they're doing something really bad to you, as such in this piece. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to come clean about these, though it's always necessary, as you've Mm -hmm. showcased. Uh, What advice would you give people listening about this, uh, listening to this, deciding if something is or isn't better left unsaid? I would say, as a child growing up, I knew that kind of behavior is not acceptable. It's not appropriate. And so... For me, my advice is if you know that something is wrong, if you feel that something is wrong, you should always speak up about it. Mm-hmm. Seek some mm-hmm. sort of help, advice. Like my thing is to never keep something that's really bothering you inside right. for mm-hmm. too long. At least share it with one person. Mm-hmm. What I really like is how you showcase like how you're a kid and you want your cousin to like you and you want everyone to like <laughs> you and you're worried that by bringing out this, it's mm-hmm. going to cause you problems, cause the family problems. Right. And I like how you as a little kid is like thinking about the entire world yeah. and trying to figure out all of the world's problems without mm-hmm. showcasing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. But right. it's also a big step that towards the end, you actually do come out and say it. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that you're not alone in this situation too with just yeah. your cousin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was really beautifully done. I remember reading this in class because we had we had CNF together um, with Professor Madrazo, and it was like one of the first stories. It was like one of the first things we ever workshopped. I remember hearing it and being so, just like, just like like floored that this was like talked about. 
So like, yeah, like what, what do you, what do you think about that whole aspect of like not keeping this taboo? Um, I felt like it was, it was a big step for me. Um, I, I, when I was younger, much younger, say like high school or early in college, I would not speak about it. Like it's something I would keep privately like I wouldn't I wouldn't want to share about it but as I got older I realized I got over it mm -hmm. and I forgave him so it felt it, I felt okay talking about it because it was no longer holding me down mm -hmm. wow mm. yeah that's very very brave of you mm -hmm. I, yep just thank you for, mm -hmm. for sharing this yeah thank you. um this is something that's difficult and it's it's made easier by people talking about it more. But if you yourself, anyone listening has, um, you know, anything similar that they want to speak to someone about or needs help with, uh, here's some resources for you. So there's the Rape and Incest National Network or RAIN Crisis Hotline. And that's it. The number is 800-656-4673. We also have the National Child Abuse Hotline, which is one 800 Two five abuse, um, and yeah, never be afraid to admit that there's something wrong and that there's help that's needed. Yeah, and with that said, thank you, Monique, for coming with us today and for reading your story out loud at the podcast. It was uh, it was amazing hearing you uh, read your story out loud. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Our last story is by someone I had the pleasure of taking CNF with, Andrew Gamone. Andrew Gamone graduated from John Jay College of Criminal Justice in the fall of 2016 with a Fire and Emergency Service major and a writing minor. After taking fiction writing with Professor Berlin, Andrew discovered his passion for writing. When he's not working full-time as a manager at Guess Inc., he writes short stories and jams out to Elvis, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, and classic rock music on his acoustic guitar and cooking dinner for his family when he doesn't have to work late shifts. Planning on going to grad school for marketing and advertising, Andrew has a goal to join the FDNY and also working for a TV network. Thank you, Karen. Let's take a listen to Andrew's piece entitled, Dear Michael. Dear Michael, for years, well, at least when I was younger, I looked up to you. I wanted to be just like my big brother. Now, well, let's just say I barely even consider you my half-brother anymore. My entire life, I always said, I'm not a salesman because I didn't want to be like you or dad. Now, well, I'm a manager, I guess, the retail store, making my way up the ladder. I'm about to graduate college and go to grad school for business management and marketing. My dream was to be a firefighter in FDNY. What am I doing in retail sales? Well, I'm freaking good at it. I'm the youngest manager in the entire company and achieved that in less than a year. I wonder if dad ever mentions that to you. If you ever hear about me like I do you. If you wonder how I'm doing, if you even care. Growing up, I never cared that you were supposedly only half of my brother. I never even cared that there were almost 20 years between us. Now, just the thought of your name makes you want to throw a brick at someone. You're successful, have a family, travel all over, and so on. 
while I'm just starting out my life. Dad is actually the one who makes it seem like a competition. Mike did this, and Mike did that, he tells me. He seems so invested in you all the time. So proud of you. And I wouldn't care about that. I really wouldn't. I'd be proud of you too. But why do I have to hear from Dad and not you? Because we don't talk anymore. That's why. We stopped talking a little after Nikki was born. Or was it Ty? I don't really remember when, but I remember what. Your sister Jennifer had seen my mother in Stop and Shop and claimed that she beat her. She was, or still is, crazy, I guess. I'm not sure on the details, but I'm 100% positive that she beat herself up, simply because it wouldn't have been the first time. Meanwhile, they're both pregnant. Does that make any sense? Not to me, but to you, it made perfect sense. That led to you coming into my house and trying to go after my mother and hurt her. If that was now, I can promise that you wouldn't be able to walk. But I was in maybe sixth grade and you were like 30 or something, so I couldn't do much then. It was confusing. Dad tried to keep the peace, but I don't think he was good at juggling both. So he chose us instead. He seems to have forgiven you for all the lies and drama. After that, our family started falling apart in other ways too. Our cousin, Chris, he messed up with dad because of everything that you put us through. I always thought it was you that manipulated him somehow. Maybe because you're older and always seem like the big shot of the family. But that's nowhere near true now. Now, even after all the shit that happened with Chris, he's still more of a brother to me than you ever were. We go to conventions, car shows, sleep over each other's houses, have parties. He's been there for me. But you? You weren't man enough to own up to what you did like Chris did. I could never, in a million years, even think about abandoning Ty the way you did me. Yeah, he's a 12-year-old pain in the ass, but he's still my baby brother. You can bet that I would take a bullet for him, just like you would for me, right? You did some stuff for me, though. Remember that time when I was in kindergarten and came in for a career day when you worked for Cartoon Network? You brought in these cool flip books from the Powerpuff Girls and Dexter's Laboratory. All the kids in my class thought you were so cool. I did too. And I was so proud. Thanks for coming that day. When Dad first started talking about your more recent success, I was already mad at you. But I'm not going to lie, even then I still wanted to do exactly what you were doing. Meeting people, traveling the country with clients, selling prime packages and tickets for whatever company you work for now. But what I notice with what I do is that, well, I matter to people. I'm significant. You work for yourself, solo, independent, not part of a team. While all that's great and all, you don't have people to back you up, to learn from, to make a difference in their lives, inside work or outside. Well, I guess that's not all true. Dad shows me pictures of your two younglings. Congrats, I guess. You know, I can't believe I actually had foolish hope that when you had your first kid, that maybe you would come back into the family or maybe even just come around for the holidays or something. Maybe I would have liked to spoil them on Christmas and see them grow up, be an uncle. I might not have ever been able to forgive you, but maybe I could have had an impact on their lives somehow. 
Now I know. I'll never meet them. And you know what? Thinking about it now doesn't bother me at all at this point. To me, they're just someone else's kids, a stranger's kids. They're not my nieces or nephews. That's how little I know about them. I don't even know their genders. I doubt you remember, but one time you came over to the new house, right after we moved out of Grandma Margie's basement, and you brought over that girl. When I sometimes think what your life might be like, I wonder if you married that same girl. She was nice, I remember. She used to play games with me, even though, thinking back on it, I was just randomly clicking buttons on a system I didn't know how to play yet. Yeah, she totally let me win. I really hope she's your wife. You know, not too long ago, when I was struggling to find my place, I guess, I reached out to you. Well, Dad did, but I asked him to. It was a low point. My wanting your help? I was just so fed up with the people I was dealing with, and the entire management team was bringing me down. So, I'd ask Dad to ask if you could find me something with all the connections you have. I would have started straight from the bottom, doing paperwork or sending letters out. I would have done anything. But you said no. He told me. He said you'd keep your eyes open. Well, thanks for that. Thanks for nothing. With all the people you know from all the companies you worked for, there wasn't one person who needed an assistant. Somebody to go through their emails, get the freaking coffee, nothing? <sighs> Dad told me recently that you might have a drinking problem because of the clientele you have at work. He says that it's a problem for you because not drinking with them is looked down upon. But honestly, I think that's bullshit. Nobody can make you consume that much alcohol in order to keep your job. Let's be real here. I tried telling Dad this, but he just brushed me off. I think he knows no one can make you have a problem, but doesn't want to admit it. If it is true that you do have a problem, then I wish you would get your shit together. Not for me, not for Dad for your kids and your wife. Nobody wants to be in that kind of relationship regardless of how much money you bring home. Anyway, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. You don't know me anymore, just like I don't know you. I don't even think I could point you out in the street these days. And honestly, I'm okay with that. Sincerely, Andrew. Wow. That was a really nice piece. And this isn't the first time I've seen it since we've taken CNF together. So thank you for being here tonight, Andrew, and for sharing this piece with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reading it again. <laughs> yeah. It was my pleasure. So, yeah, I really like the way you, you make it in epistolary format, a personal letter, to tell your story in a way that keeps the, the letter personal but open enough for readers who don't know your life to follow follow along um lines like our cousin chris he messed up with dad because of everything you put us through and another line that says we stopped talking after nikki was born or was it ty with ty was the name yeah I, it really gives us a background on the relationship without being too distant from the personal feel and emotions of the story so i have to ask was it hard balancing the personal feel of a letter format, a piscillary format, and um, making sure to give us enough background about everyone's lives. Um, ironically, it came easier than a 
traditional CNF story just because I wrote it in a journal on the train and it just started with Dear Michael and I just let the feelings of everything I was going through and what happened and so on and so on flow onto the page. It just came more natural to have a open discussion and then tweaking it later, putting it into more of a writing style Mm -hmm. as opposed to me just venting. I find that the best stories come out that way. Um, one of my stories I, I did from a from a journal that, that came out pretty good and it was inspired like a step by step. And I actually think this is the first um personal letter that we've had on yeah. on the podcast. So it's pretty is. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with with like direction. Like it's to mm-hmm. somebody. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. So there's a lot of times that you mention your dad in the piece. Lines like Dad is actually the one who makes it seem like a competition. And when Dad first start, uh, started talking about your more recent successes, do you think these mentions of your brother negatively or maybe even positively influenced you or your relationship with your brother? Loaded question, I know. That's a loaded question. Wow, okay. Um, I don't think so much what my father has to say about it I think it was more about the the past of what happened when, like in the story, when um, my half-brother comes into my house. Uh, I think that has more effect on it. Uh, my father plays a role in more of a, a jealous, like why, why not boast about me right. kind of relationship that I have. Does that answer your question? Yeah, okay, definitely. Cool. Yeah. Um, so going with the theme of the episode, Better Left Them Said, if given the chance, or if the chance has already happened, would you want anyone in your story, like your brother, dad, cousin, or even the nieces and nephews you don't know, to read the story or hear it? Um, I don't mind if they hear it or read it or it stumbles upon them while they search my name on Google. It, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. You know, I wrote this with intentions that it would be out in the world for everyone to see. Mm. Um, would I send it to them willingly? Probably <laughs> not. Uh, Most definitely not. There's a lot more mm. anger underneath the the written word. Yeah. So I think it would come across more uh, more of an attack on that mm. on yeah. the individual situation and himself. Uh, if he wanted to come see me in the streets and <laughs> have this discussion, then that's another story. Yeah. Yeah. Discussion. Would you yeah. would you send like a edited nicer version Not of this letter? It would, probably, no. it would probably be meaner. Oh, okay. It would probably be awesome. like. Yeah. I think that's, you know. that's bold to say that truth mm-hmm. because, you know, there's always a really intense desire for happy endings and for conclusion and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to like have feelings of like, Wanting to throw a brick at somebody? Yeah! <laughs> I love throwing a good brick. Mm. Yeah, listen. <laughs> Personally. Well, this is a bit of a small follow-up question to that. Um, but um, for clarification, uh, this was, this piece was written a while ago, right? Uh, three months ago? Four oh, months ago? Nice. Yeah. It, oh, so okay. So it's pretty recent. But even then, you know, three months, you, you can still have a lot of things happen within, like, three months. For sure. But uh, just for the sake of closure, um, 
how how are things with uh with michael uh, at the moment if you don't mind uh if you don't mind my asking um mostly because like i said a lot can happen in three months so it's yeah it's either that or nothing happened at all and you got and both of you are still you know very much estranged nothing happened at all and both of us are very much estranged um pretty much that nothing nothing changes nothing people are who they are thank you for that you're welcome do something do it sincerely (laughs) 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 how about that what is this about this whole sincerely thing uh sincerely is a made-up word from is it and <laughs> actor who made a campaign and to get the word into the dictionary. And when you do something sincere, you do it seriously. When you do something serious, do it sincere. Therefore, do it sincerely. Oh, clever. that's very clever. I really mm. like that. Very nice closing to this piece. I know. I think we have. <laughs> yeah. They should put that in the dictionary. They, yeah. they, they should. should. They were like 500 people away. Link me to that petition. All right. Well, with that, <laughs> thank you from the bottom of our sincerest hearts. Our sincerest hearts. <laughs> <laughs> thank you we, for coming we here. We sincerely loved you being here. <laughs> we sincerely did. Oh my God, we're the worst. <laughs> and we're gonna pun about yes. this all day. <laughs> I'm gonna pun about this. All we're sincerely the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thank you very, very much for having me again, and have a good night. Good night to you too. Good night. Good night. And that concludes our ninth episode of the season, Better Left Unset. We're all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. You could always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night!